Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about overcoming adversity, discovering your authentic self by retraining your brain for success and sustainable happiness. My first guest is Amy Morin. Alrighty then, today we're talking about probably the most powerful resource that we have as human beings. And I really mean that seriously. And that is our mental strength. If we are strong in our minds and resilient in our heads and have a strength of heart, we can pretty much accomplish anything. My guest today has been with me before, and I'm so excited to have her back to talk about her latest book, 13 Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do. And my guest is Amy Morin. Welcome, Amy. Thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me back. Well, I want to talk about your history and what brought you to write this book in particular. Well, I was a therapist and I thought my job in life was going to be about teaching people who came into my therapy office how to become mentally strong. Went through a series of losses in my own life. My mother passed away suddenly and then Three years later, my 26-year-old husband died of a heart attack. A few years after that, I was finally felt like I was getting my life back together, building this new life for myself, and I got remarried, and life was looking good. And then my father-in-law was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and I just found myself thinking, oh, why do I have to keep losing loved ones? This isn't fair. But it really set me on this journey to study mental strength from a different perspective. I really wanted to know what made some people mentally stronger than others, what made some people bounce back from tragedy while some people got stuck. And in my work as a therapist, I studied everyone who came in to figure out how come some people are so resilient. And I realized that it wasn't always about what people did. Sometimes it was about what they did do. And so I wrote the article, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. It went viral. It got 50 million views. And before I know it, I had a book deal. And that led to my first book about what mentally strong people don't do. But over time, I started getting a lot of questions about raising mentally strong kids. So that led to my second book, which is 13 Things Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do. And then I just had so many questions from women about how to raise strong daughters. And in light of the Me Too movement, how do you be a mentally strong woman? And I really wanted to write a book specifically for women, even though building mental strength is the same for men as it is for women. I wanted to talk about some of the realities, some of the cultural pressures that women face and why things are a little bit different for women and how how to be a strong woman in the workplace, how to be a strong uh, woman in your personal life. And so that's what really led me to write this book. And I'm so excited to finally be able to share it. And I am too. I, I want to talk about the, the differences, the subtle differences, or maybe they're not so subtle differences between men and women in their resilience. I mean, we think of somebody having, you know, being courageous, brave, strength of heart, that's a resilient person. But then there are shades of gray where men and women may separate. Yeah, I think there's this mentality that suppressing your emotions and acting as though you don't care, that nothing hurts your feelings, that that is strength. And we see it with all of these examples of mental toughness that we tend to get are usually Navy SEALs or these elite athletes who push their body to the limits. So I just wanted to show that women can be strong too, even if they can't lift as many weights as a man. It doesn't mean that they aren't mentally strong or just because they are maybe a stay-at-home mom, that doesn't mean that you aren't strong too. I just wanted to show that women were raised a little bit differently. In the book, I give lots of research studies about how parents, teachers, we tend to treat girls a little bit differently than we do boys. And sometimes we set them up for 
developing these bad habits that I talk about in the book. Let's talk a little bit about modern day dangers that girls and women face out there. I think there's lots of them from emotional dangers from saying, okay, I'm going to put on my game face when I go to work. For example, we know that women are more likely to be penalized for showing anger or for showing their emotions in the office. Well, if a man shows anger, then he tends to be touted as a great leader or strong person. When a woman shows anger, we call her crazy or say she's too emotional to handle a leadership position. (laughs) Or a bit. Right. Exactly. (laughs) And, uh, you know, heaven forbid a woman cry at work, then we say she's just too sensitive. Yet at the same time, we teach little girls that it's okay to cry. We tell little boys not to cry, but we tell little girls it's okay to cry. But then when you grow up and you still cry, sometimes you're penalized for it. So there's certainly those emotional dangers. And then obviously there's physical dangers too for women. It's easy, I think, for men to say that the world is a safe place, but they don't have to go through a lot of the things that we do as women. They don't have to think about walking out to their car in a dark parking lot as much as we do, or they don't have to worry as much about being raped, being harassed, being catcalled when they walk down the street. And also, I think that the difference in men and women is also women will invest in their physical presence, you know, their beauty, and tend to feel less valued, less strong, and less resilient if somebody looks at them the wrong way. You know, that a self-confident woman who doesn't really care, you know, is part of this resiliency, right? And I'm not saying one shouldn't take care of themselves. That's not what I'm saying. Right. But for women, there's so much pressure on us to look good. And if you were to read, you know, any type of magazine that's on the shelf that's written for women, I mean, it's filled with beauty tips and advice on how to how to change your clothing, how to get a new wardrobe, how to put on makeup, how to become more productive even though you're expected to do so much stuff. So I think it's just, and I give some examples in the book, say, for example, when Michelle Obama was in the White House as the first lady, she talked about how every outfit she wore was scrutinized in the media, right down to what shoes she had on and what kind of jewelry she wore. And then she said, President Obama wore the same outfit for years and nobody even noticed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So give us some things that women don't do. Mentally strong women don't do. So one of the big things is that they don't compare themselves to other people. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the interesting things that I found in my research is sort of how, how women compare themselves differently than men do. If we took Instagram or social media, for example, it's filled with pictures of beautiful people. When a woman sees a beautiful looking woman, we're more likely to think, gosh, how come I can't look like that? But if a man sees a picture of an idyllic looking man, he's more likely to think, gosh, if I work out more, I could look like that someday. So men tend to get some inspiration from it. Whereas women, we tend to feel bad about ourselves. I don't think I've ever looked at a a fitness magazine and then closed it and thought, gosh, I feel great about myself right now. And so I think it's so important just to recognize how how much we compare ourselves and what it does to us and how we feel about ourselves. I'm going to go to number 13 because this one is just jumping out at me. They don't downplay their success. This is actually my personal favorite chapter. Yeah, me too. I'm with you, sister. (laughs) Because I think that as women, you know, when you talk about your success, your achievement, if you say, I got a raise, I think we're so quick to accuse that woman of bragging or being narcissistic and in the book, I talk about some some real life examples of the differences between men and women when we talk about our success and our our fear of looking too ambitious. And studies right down to uh, single women in the classroom don't raise their hand as often because they're afraid that they would intimidate the men in the classroom in college classes. Yeah. Or when it comes to compliments. We struggle so much with just saying thank you when somebody says something to us. We tend to deflect the compliment in some way. We say, no, you're amazing or, oh, this old shirt, I bought it just the other day for $10 or something like that because we're uncomfortable with saying thank you. It's almost as if saying thank you for that compliment means I agree with you and I'm I'm great and that we're afraid we're going to look arrogant. And it's also, I think, about receiving. 
you know, that uh, I think for women, many of us have a hard time really receiving when someone gives a compliment or when someone praises us for an accomplishment, it's the receipt of it that feels uncomfortable. It's not the, not the fact that we've achieved it. Right. And then I think we end up sometimes giving a compliment back because it's like we feel guilty if somebody compliments us and we don't offer an immediate compliment back. And it can be uncomfortable to, to receive those kind words about ourselves. So I think it's really fascinating. And women, when they receive compliments from women, even they tend to accept them even far less often. We tend to offer a quick compliment back to other women because we feel like we're not worthy or that we shouldn't receive something unless we give back really quickly. Yeah, yeah. agreed. Here's another one that I really love. Mm-mm-mm. Number seven, they don't fear breaking the rules. I like that chapter as well. (laughs) From a young age, you know, when you can trace it right back to little kids, when we teach that boys will be boys, we have this mentality that little boys can break the rules, they can be loud, but girls, we expect them to be be polite, well-mannered, quiet, and we teachers will have a lot less tolerance for, for girls who are disruptive in class. And we're all taught that, that as women, you should really follow the rules and that men are taught it's okay to break the rules. And they also, when they do break a rule, they don't see it as nearly as serious as we do. We tend to, if we break a rule, whether it's just a little social rule or some sort of minor violation, women tend to see it as a, a big issue, whereas men can kind of shrug it off. Yeah. And I think it's important to clarify what you mean by breaking the rules. You're not talking about committing high crimes and misdemeanors. You're talking about, you know, pushing the envelope on little things because perhaps it makes more logical sense or it's a way to move beyond a barrier, the rules of one's own mind or the construct of one's family dynamics. I think that's really what you're talking about. Yeah, it could be just a sort of a gender norm issue. Maybe you decide, even as a woman, I'm going to be a firefighter. It's kind of against like the unwritten rules, or I'm going to have my uh, male partner be a stay-at-home parent, and I'm going to be the breadwinner. Or it might also be, say, job applications. If a job application says you need 10 years of experience, men will apply when they have eight years. Women wait until they have 10 and a half years to apply. So it's just those sort of constraints that sometimes keep us stuck. Yeah. I love the fact that these are don't. This is the negative. This is through the negative comes the positive. You know, it's counterintuitive, right? But it's working. Yes, there's just, you know, I think sometimes just focus on the bad habits that are keeping you stuck and then all of your good habits become much more effective. We're going to come back. We're going to take that break. And when we come back, Amy, I'd love for you to read like your most favorite or one of your most favorite passages from from the book, um, 13 Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do because it contains advice that will help empower women and men from all walks of life. To learn more about Amy Morin and her work, please visit amymorinlcsw.com, on Twitter at amymorinlcsw, and on Facebook, that page is Amy Morin Author. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Hey, listen up, y'all. Before we take the break, I want to take a moment to appreciate today's sponsor, Audible. Time is a precious commodity, and taking the time to listen more is an absolute gift. Listening to audiobooks inspires us, motivates us, helps us to learn and grow, and can even bring us closer to each other. And there's no better place to listen than Audible. Right now, I'm listening to recent show guest Aaron Dignan's Brave New Work, a book about collective intelligence and revolutionizing the way companies work. I enjoy listening while I cook, work out, and even fold the laundry. Audible has the largest and most diverse selection of audiobooks on the planet. And now, Audible members get more benefits than ever before. Each month, they get three titles of their choice, one audiobook, two Audible Originals, fitness programs, and exclusive sales that they can't get anywhere else. Members can download and access their selection on a variety of digital devices to listen and enjoy on demand and on the go. There's never been a better time to experience Audible. Try it yourself free for 30 days by visiting audible.com slash hh or text the code hh to 500-500 and listen for a change. Once again, you get to enjoy a complimentary 30-day trial at audible.com slash hh or text that code hh to 500-500 and listen. Let's head to the break. We'll be right back. That's a promise. 
To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us now, we're talking about overcoming adversity, discovering your authentic self by retraining your brain for success and sustainable happiness. My guest today is Amy Moore, and let's return to the conversation. I'm talking with my cool guest today, Amy Moore, and she is the author of 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. She's been on the show before, but this time I get a great chuckle and pleasure of saying that she is coming to us from the rough seas of the Florida Keys on a winter's day. So beat that, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So Amy, let's talk a little bit about not staying silent because that is like rule number 11, right? Don't stay silent. Yes. And to clarify in this chapter, I think it's important to make it clear that if something happened to you and you didn't tell anyone, it doesn't mean that you're mentally weak, but harboring secrets definitely drains your mental strength. So whether you were abused as a child or you went through some sort of traumatic event, it's up to you to decide, is it worth telling the authorities? Should you go to the police? And the answer isn't an automatic yes. It's up to everybody to decide. But You should at least tell somebody, whether it's a therapist, a trusted friend, you go to a support group. You just don't want to hold in secrets that create shame. But this chapter is also not just about traumatic events. It's also about, as women, finding our voices and speaking up. And study after study will show that women in business meetings speak 75% less than men. We tend to take a back seat. And it's not that women are necessarily more effective in their communication, so they don't need to talk as much. It's that women just aren't making their voices heard. And studies will show when women do speak that they're very effective and they can be quite persuasive, but that we let men interrupt us. We allow ourselves to be shut down and We don't take the front seat in knowing, okay, how do I speak up? How do I make my voice heard? It's tough to do. It is tough to do. And the challenge becomes sort of owning your voice and being able to take command of the situation, but do it in a respectful way, you know, where you're not getting the backs of the other people in the room up, you know, like the situation that you just said in terms of in meetings, you know, how do you claim your space, claim your voice and say, wait, hang on one sec. I just, I really want to get this thought out. Right. And so sometimes it's a matter of uh, setting a limit, telling somebody, oh, gosh, I wasn't done if you get interrupted. Sometimes it's just when a leader says, do we have any ideas? Be willing to share yours. We tend to hold them in or think that they're not good enough. And of course, it's best when we can get leaders on board with recognizing what's happening that, hey, men are getting all the airtime. How do women speak up? If you have a leader then who can invite women to speak, makes it much easier. Agreed. And let's go back to something that you said about the secrets. You know, like we are only as sick as our secrets and we've all got them. Right. Right. And I think for so long we were told, you know, just not to talk about certain subjects or it's impolite or unladylike. And I think the Me Too movement is hopefully changing a lot of that and just bringing things to light and helping us all realize that we've put up with a lot of things that we probably didn't need to or shouldn't have for a long time. And I'm hoping that we can make more positive change as we move forward. And, you know, I think that speaks to having the dignity of our process, you know, that everybody has that right to process the things that have happened to them, whether it's with a professional or a trusted friend. But that does keep us keep us small when we don't, I think. Yes. And In interviewing women for this book, one of the things I heard several times was from women who said, but what happened to me wasn't that bad. So they didn't feel like they had a right to speak up or to put something out there with a hashtag me too, because they said, you know, what happened to other people was worse than me. But I really hope that we all spread the message that whatever it was that happened to you, you absolutely have a right to talk to somebody about it. 
You know, it's funny you mentioned that when the Me Too movement first started and all of these public figures were being outed, I thought back to an occasion when I was in undergraduate school. I was working in a real estate agency in Boston and I was, I was accosted by the owner and I really didn't think anything of it. I thought, oh, God, what a jerk. And I just brushed it off. And then years later, sort of in the retelling, you see how it, it, it is pervasive and it permeates all aspects of our lives. It is. Sorry that that happened to you. And I think, gosh, most of us women probably have those things. Oh, yeah. Happened to me. And at the time, maybe you didn't even realize that it was all that wrong because that's where our society was. If you watch movies from the 80s, some of them are so cringeworthy now. And you think we watch these. Yeah, that's just what jerky guys did. You know, right. it didn't, It you know, I don't don't necessarily believe that I was traumatized by it, but it affected me. I thought, sheesh, what a jerk. Right, <laughs> Let right. Let me go back to work, you know? I would love for you to read a passage from the book, if you would. Do me the honor. <laughs> sure, I'll take it just a, a piece from the introduction that kind of explains a little bit about the book. There have probably been times in your life when you felt strong, powerful, and unstoppable, but those instances may feel few and far between. You've probably also caught glimpses of how strong you could be, like in those moments when you almost make a brave move. Wouldn't it be nice to draw upon your inner strength all the time so you can reach your greatest potential? This book is meant to help you do just that. I'm not going to tell you that you need to be doing more grueling activities to live a better life. There are already too many messages out there insisting you should be doing more to improve yourself. Instead, I'll explain how to give up the bad habits that are draining you of the mental strength you need. I'll teach you how to work smarter, not just harder, so you can become the best version of yourself. I've joined the club. <laughs> I'm part of Team Amy. Excellent. Yeah. yeah, and I love your approach. It's really no nonsense. There's, there's humor. There's, um, there's a lighthearted way that you present that makes difficult topics more palatable. Thank you for that, because I, I really want it to be something that people find to be an easier read, and but something that's still inspirational and, and helpful with real action steps, not just about the philosophy of mental strength, but with exercises that will help you start becoming better right away. Let's talk about one other don't. To be mentally and emotionally strong, women don't put others down to lift themselves up. Right. This one, I think there's a lot of subtle ways that sometimes we put people down. And I think on the surface, we're so quick to say, well, I don't put people down because maybe you don't call people names like like an eight-year-old might. But at the same time, how often do we participate in gossip? Or how quick are we to join a conversation about somebody that we don't like? And rather than just going to the person that we have a problem with directly, it's easier sometimes to go to five other coworkers and complain about that person. Or sometimes as women too, we think, well, there aren't a lot of opportunities for women. If I'm just seen as another woman in the office, then I might get held back. So you hear women say things like, well, I'm not like other women, as sort of as a way to separate themselves. And then we're not doing anybody any favors, especially our, our fellow women. And so I think it's so important to just be a genuine cheerleader for everyone. But for women especially, to point out their hard work and to support them through their struggles and to know that knocking them down a peg or two on the social hierarchy won't actually make you stronger. And in the long run, it won't make you look any better. Now, in fact, I would say it might make us look weaker. Absolutely. I think uh, people around us see really quickly and they understand, gosh, if you'll talk bad about everybody else, I have no doubt when I step away from the circle, you're going to say something about me too. Yeah. Uplift and support one another, whether it's another woman or, or a guy. You know, I think, you know, playing to the strengths, the best parts of ourselves makes everybody look good. Yes. And I'll hear from some people, well, I don't have anybody in my life who's really a cheerleader. Well, go out and be some, be that person for somebody else and then watch what happens. I think you get a big benefit from it as well when you can genuinely cheer somebody on and be supportive of them. My guest today has been Amy Morin. The book that we're talking about is 13 Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do. 
Own your power, channel your confidence, and find your authentic voice for a life of meaning and joy. My guest, Amy Morin, is the global expert on mental strength. She combines case studies, practical tips, and her own firsthand experiences with grief to provide strategies women can use to build mental muscle and navigate the patriarchal world. To learn more, please visit amymorinlcsw.com, on Twitter at amymorinlcsw, and on Facebook, that page is Amy Morin Author. Thanks again for hanging out with me. You're always a joy. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Come back, girl. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) Here comes the break. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. the show. Let's get back to it. We're talking about overcoming adversity, discovering your authentic self by retraining your brain for success and sustainable happiness. My second guest today is Rachel Grant. Today, we are going to change the way that you think about sexual abuse and the recovery from it. Did you know that one in three women and one in six men will experience some form of sexual abuse or assault in their lifetime. And did you also know that 93% of those victims under the age of 18, I believe, will know their abuser? My guest today is Rachel Grant. She is the author of Beyond Surviving, the Final Stage in Recovery from Sexual Abuse. She has a consultancy with the recovery of sexual abuse or focused on the recovery of sexual abuse. She works with survivors of childhood sexual abuse who are sick and tired of feeling broken and unfixable. And I can't wait to have this conversation with you, Rachel, because we are taking some skeletons out of the closet. Yes, yes, indeed. Oh my goodness. I'm ready for it. I'm so I glad am to be too. here. I'm, Thank you, Lisa. Oh, it is my pleasure. You have a master's degree in counseling psychology. And just to get right to the point here, through your experience in personal and professional, you have learned that it is not the traditional form of talk therapy that helps people move through that final stage of their recovery. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that happened for me, it's now I'm going into my 12th year of doing this work. And pretty early on, I was asking some different questions I felt than what I was seeing out there in the fields of, you know, therapy and traditional recovery work. What I started to notice was that for myself personally, I was hitting some roadblocks in healing because I would go in to those, you know, therapist's office and I would talk about the trauma. I would talk about the things in my life that I was struggling with, having a hard time trusting people, being angry all the time, you know, up and down and up and down the emotional roller coaster and all of that. And I really got frustrated that the people who I was seeking guidance from didn't seem to know how to actually support me in those moments. They would say things to me like, well, what do you think you should do about that? How do you feel about that? Like, are you kidding me? Yeah. Uh, What am I paying you for? And so I had really hit a place in my life. I was coming out of a a 10 year relationship and I was at, you know, one of those low points where I think we all get to sometimes where, you know, life had been stripped away. It was not going the way I thought it was going to go. And I remember in that moment, Lisa, there was this just really strong voice that said, you know, Rachel, you have got to get your shit together. Like right now. <laughs> Not Amen. <tomorrow>. <laughs> right now. And so that was really where along with those, you know, very unfulfilling, unsupportive experiences that I was having, I decided, okay, I'm going to see if I can take this on. And I just became obsessed with trying to answer this question of how do we actually heal 
from sexual abuse. And so I began to read everything I could. I did my master's degree. I studied neuroscience and I began to piece together all of these different layers. And I really began to understand that I could develop simple, straightforward strategies that would actually help me heal this injury of trauma and guarantee that I wouldn't spend the rest of my life in recovery. And that eventually evolved into what is today the Beyond Surviving program. And it is a step-by-step program. It is a curriculum. It is about taking people from point A to point B and giving them the guidance to help them get there rather than just sitting there with them and saying, oh, I'm sure you'll figure this out. Yeah. And what I want to say about coaching is, you know, it has both a good name and a bad name, right? Like coaching in its traditional sense is somebody who is skilled at a particular activity or sport or expertise and then takes on mentees and helps them arrive at outlier status, right? Which is expertise status at that skill or that craft. And I think it's also gotten a bit of a a difficult name when we talk about psychology and psychotherapy. I think that's right. What's interesting is when I very first started back in 2007, there was no such thing as coaching around sexual abuse trauma. The only avenue was counseling or therapy, working with a psychiatrist, med management, all of those things. And what I've seen in the field of therapy in the past year or two years is they're kind of catching on, Lisa. They are. <laughs> yes. Notice, hey, people don't want to just sit here in this room and, and talk about their stuff. And and actually, like, that's a really important part of the process. So I'm not discounting that. But what I have seen and what I started to feel myself was I'm going to get stuck here. And now that I've been working with people who are coming to me in their 50s and 60s, this is a little bit of what happens sometimes in therapy. They get stuck at that survivor stage where they're talking about the trauma, they're rehearsing, you know, the past, they're revisiting all of that, but they're not actually getting the support they need to move things forward. And so that's why it's been really important for me, no matter what the thing is that we're looking at, whether it's shame, communication, setting boundaries sexuality, you know, intimacy, that we work on it on a level of introspection and understanding, which is, you know, classic kind of counseling reflection work. But then we always ask the question, what are we going to do about that? Yes. What next? What's the next? What's what's the next action? Yeah. And so in the work that I get to do with the beautiful men and women who come my way is offer them the what, the how. That I think is sometimes the most frustrating part of any healing journey. It's like, I know what I want. I know what I want to experience instead. I just don't know how to get there. And it started to seem really absurd to me that we would treat something like mental health as this like wandering journey where you just find your way out of the forest somehow miraculously. I thought, you know, what if there's actually a path? And if we just walk this path, then we recover and we move out of it. And so that's really been my joy of kind of refining that and thinking about that and developing this program to support people in that part of their journey. Let's jump into the stages of abuse recovery, because you've kind of dissected this down to some pretty important elements. So what I notice is that people are generally going through three stages of recovery. And the first stage is the victim stage. So this is the part in your journey where you're in denial about what happened. You don't want to talk about it. You don't want to face it. You're maybe pretending that everything is A-OK, like no problem here. You know, for me, that's exactly what happened after the abuse was discovered by my mom when I was, my grandfather was my abuser. And when my mom found out what was going on, she and my dad like got him immediately out of our home and they wanted me to go to counseling. They haven't managed to get my butt in a seat for like one session. (laughs) (laughs) But then I was like, are you all crazy? I'm not talking about this. I don't want to look at this. I don't want to think about it. Everything must just be okay. And I continued in that stage all the way up until my 20s. 
when, you know, it started to really show up that I did not know how to navigate relationships. I was suffering. I was sad all the time. And then I decided, okay, I've got to acknowledge that this happened. And that's the bridge. Acknowledgement is the bridge from victim to survivor. Wow. As soon as we're able to say, this shit happened to me, it's impacting my life, then we can no longer be in the victim stage. We necessarily move into the place where we're processing the experience and we're exploring the impact of that experience. And that's the survivor stage, a really important place where we get to finally name what happened to us. And we finally get to acknowledge the experience and all of the trickle-down effects of that experience. We start to understand some of the connections. Oh, this is why I can't trust. Oh, this is why I'm always pushing people away. Oh, this is why I have these thoughts about myself. Eventually, we want to get out of that stage, though. We don't want to live there. It's not a very happy place to no, live. No, I'm thinking to end. myself as you're describing, mm-hmm. it's like, ooh, this is the dark. Mm. Yeah, right. And so when we start to reach this point where we're like, okay, I understand all of these things that have happened to me, but I do not see myself shifting out of these behaviors in the way that I really want to. It's kind of the enough is enough moment in your life where you're tired of it, you're over it, you want something to change, and you're ready to do the more challenging work of actually addressing the issues on that deeper level, then you step into the beyond surviving stage. And that's where you get to learn all of the things that you missed out on learning because you were going through abuse and trauma. Intense work. Very, very intense work. And not for the faint of heart, because it's it's when you move beyond the victim stage and you are called into action, that requires some muscle. Yeah, that's right. And so oftentimes the people who are coming to me, they have maybe done a lot of therapy. And so they've done a lot of great processing work and they've reached a kind of a place of stability, but they're recognizing they need something more. They have support system around them, or at least they're willing to work with me to build that support system that they need in order to take this work on. All that being said, I think sometimes people are pretty surprised by the work that we're doing in this program, that it's not, you know, ripping away and pulling things back and very intense and heavy. It's really about asking the question, what are you experiencing in your life? Do you understand why you're experiencing that? And if not, let's identify that But then let's talk about how you can actively change that. And so in this work, people are being empowered to take charge of their lives. And that ultimately is a rewarding experience and a fulfilling experience. And so we don't actually dive super deep. Sometimes people are surprised. I don't even actually have them tell me any of their story until session 10 out of 16. Because we actually need to have all of these other things completed before the disclosing of the story. I hear over and over again, people going into therapy with someone who's not trauma informed, being asked to tell their entire story in the first couple of sessions. And that is so dangerous. It's re-traumatizing. The person doesn't have enough of a foundation. They don't know how to regulate their system enough. And so um, that's one of the reasons why we do things in a very particular order in the Beyond Surviving program is to prevent re-traumatization, but also to affect the best change in the best ways. It's kind of like baking a cake, right? (laughs) Yes. Yes. If you put something in, I don't actually bake, so I don't really know what you need to well, do. Well, the but. wrong sequence, right? Or <laughs> right. you know, you throw a wet yeah. ingredient into the dry bowl, you know, yeah. it's, it's going to affect you know. the outcome. <laughs> exactly. That's right. And yeah. I really believe it's the same when it comes to healing um, trauma. I really like what you just said about not disclosing the story until well into the the program, because ultimately, by the time you tell that story, hopefully, if one has done the work diligently, the, the story becomes somewhat diffused, the charge on the story, not the story itself. 
Yep, that's exactly right. Having the capacity, first of all, releasing the shame around that story is critical because otherwise, if you start to tell this story of trauma, but you still believe on levels that there's something that you did that caused that trauma, there's something about who you are that caused that trauma, then as you're relating this story, you're actually activating all of that shame. Yeah. And it becomes, you know, debilitating. And the anger that we might feel towards that person we want to have actually gotten in touch with before we tell that story. Uh, and also just being able to know that we can self-regulate. So if any triggering does start to happen or any dissociation does start to happen, you know what to do to take care of yourself in that moment. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Rachel Grant. We're talking about her books, uh, Beyond Surviving, The Final Stage in Recovery from Sexual Abuse. To learn more, please visit www.rachelgrantcoaching.com. On Twitter, she can be found at Coach Rachel G. And on Facebook, Healing from Sexual Abuse. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. We're talking about overcoming adversity, discovering your authentic self by retraining your brain for success and sustainable happiness. My guest is Rachel Grant. Let's get back to the conversation. We're talking about something that is really difficult, but difficult while many of us in our lifetimes will experience it, and that is sexual abuse. My guest today is Rachel Grant. She is the author of Beyond Surviving, the Final Stage in Recovery from Sexual Abuse. And we're talking about uh, her book, her program, and the phases or stages of recovery uh, from the abuse that one can hope to attain after doing the work. Rachel, talk a little bit about those clients that are coming to you in their midlife and later years who have quote unquote lived that normal life for decades and then something happens and they need help. Yes, absolutely. So I find there are different incentives for people at different stages in their life. And my 20-somethings, they're often coming to me because they are recognizing, I got to get this handled now. (laughs) And actually, generationally, it's really beautiful to see that 20s and 30-somethings are feeling more empowered to reach out for support. There's more structure in place for them. And so they're able to get on that road and on that journey sooner rather than later. The women who come to me and men who come to me in their 50s and 60s, generationally, they did not have access to support in the way that the generations of today do. This was much more, it's still taboo and it's still very much hidden and we still have victim blame. We've got a lot of work to do, in other words, but there are definitely more resources and more conversation about this than what my 50s and 60-somethings had available to them. And so there's just also this awakening that happens for them. They go, oh, actually, this is something that I can talk about and I can find resources for. Also, there can be this moment of, particularly for the women who I work with, my kids are grown, everything's kind of stable now, I've done my work, whatever it is, now it's the time for me. And this moment of awakening where they say, hey, you know what, I've been doing a great job of taking care of everybody else. 
it's time for me to take care of me. And I think that's a common theme in many ways. We hit a point where we say, all right, I've got to face this. And it could be a change in career. It could be a change in family status. It could be that you have an experience that triggers a memory and brings things back up. Oftentimes, the death of someone or a child getting to a particular age, maybe the age where you were that person experienced trauma or abuse, all of these things can ignite and cause, you know, this thing that has been quietly tucked away. You thought you were doing a great job, right? (laughs) Of pushing it off in the corner, keeping it all nice and pretty. It just comes rearing its head out and says, no, you know what? You are going to look at this. You are going to have to handle this because no matter how much we try to stuff it away, no matter how much we try to push it off into the edges of our lives, it is there and it is impacting us. And so when we hit that moment, when we're ready to say, okay, I see that and I acknowledge that, then we're going to take the steps that we need to take to address it. And the approach that I see you taking is really a therapeutic coaching approach. It's like you are giving people the fundamental skills that one might learn in traditional therapy, but the added bonus is the ability to place those skills into action. So there's movement. Yeah. Right. So when we are together, the conversation is always about what do you notice that you're struggling with in your life right now? What happened in the past that's creating that struggle? And what tool, skill, strategy, life lesson, mindset is going to help you to move forward? So a big part of my work is actually helping people to understand the injury of trauma to the brain and to the nervous system. When we are traumatized. We, on a neurological level, develop all sorts of associations and connections and the brain becomes, you know, a little bit out of whack, right? The amygdala, the part of your brain that controls that stress response system is like on high alert all the time. It gets switched on and it has a very hard time switching off. And so when you're experiencing being, you know, hypervigilant, you have anxiety all the time, you're worried all the time, you're fearful all the time, that has everything to do with the impact of trauma on your brain and your nervous system. I agree with what you're saying. And I also, as you're speaking, I'm also going like, all right, so a a traumatized brain, you know, somebody who has uh, endured trauma and perhaps repeated trauma, that brain does not necessarily decipher the true risk in the present tense. This is beyond the when the trauma occurred, of a real threat or a perceived threat. Let's say somebody cuts you off in traffic and nearly misses Mm -hmm. your car. Mm -hmm. Your brain goes on this high tactical alert that, oh my God, this danger is absolutely life-threatening. Yes, that's right. So we have, I often describe it as our risk meters get a little broken. <laughs> so Certainly tweet. <laughs> yeah, right. And so we have a hard time filtering the data. And one of the fascinating things about survivors of trauma is that our ability to be aware of our environment is, it's like the dial is turned up on that. So that can be very detrimental if you don't know how to use it, but it actually becomes a superpower once you know how to. So, for example, I'll be walking down the street and I will see the kid who's going to step out in front of the car before anybody else does because I have a capacity to see a lot more of my environment because of that trauma. But Before I understood how to use that as my superpower, it was debilitating because I would be looking at everything as danger, right? And there was too much data coming in all the time and my system was overwhelmed and I didn't know how to take care of myself in that space. And so that's, I think, one of my favorite things about working with survivors of sexual abuse is they have such capacity for love and generosity and courage and awareness. And it's just like, can we strip out all of the junk That's getting in your way of being your best, most wonderful self. And that ultimately is the heart and soul of what I get to do with people all the time is help them remember who they actually are so they can pursue those dreams that they have so that they can have the relationships that they want. Ultimately, that's what Beyond Surviving is all about. You know, I hit a moment in my life, Lisa, where I thought, 
man, I was having a conversation with this guy and I was telling him a little bit about my life and my journey. And he says to me, Rachel, you're such a survivor. It's so amazing. I'm so inspired by you. And poor guy, because that day was just not the day. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, you know what? I do not want to just survive my life. You know, this feels so worthless to just do that. I want to live my life. Yeah. To thrive and flourish and and move beyond that station or that label which is possible. I mean, you're living proof that it's possible. And stories like yours and the work that you are doing are empowering to others to step out from the dark, you know, into the light, take the skeleton out of the closet and see that there is a a post-traumatic growth that can occur in spite of these horrible stories. Every experience that we have in our lives is a part of the tapestry of who we are. What happens with trauma is it, it's almost like it tries to take over the entire tapestry and our, our attitudes and our, our heart and our soul and our focus get so just stuck at that moment in time that we can only see ourselves and our experience and what's possible through the lens of trauma. Yeah. And so when we understand how to take this experience and integrate it, and therefore, for example, for myself, the, you know, the, the goal that I'm working on with every single person who I talk to is to help them reach this place where this experience is just like any other experience. So I grew up in Oklahoma. I love to dance. I will eat peanut butter ice cream anytime there's an opportunity. I was sexually abused, right? I love to watch TV. It all has the same energetics to it. Not one of them is higher than the other. Mm, I like it. I get it. Yeah, that's it. And it's not sometimes people think, oh, you're just dismissing the experience. You're minimizing the experience. No, that's what I was doing when I was in the victim stage. And actually, the energy around the abuse was super high and I was just doing everything I could to push it away. But once we acknowledge and name the impact of the experience that we've had and we learn how to integrate it into the whole of our life journey, that's how we strip away the energy of trauma. And then it becomes, yes, there's this experience that I had and it sucked. Believe me, it sucked. I'm never repeated. It's not like I'm so glad it happened. And it's no longer the core or the essence of my story. It's just a part of my story. Oh, and the story of you is so much greater. The story of us is so much greater than these things that happen to us. Yeah, 100. Yeah. The book we are talking about today is Beyond Surviving the Final Stage in Recovery from Sexual Abuse. To learn more about the work of Rachel Grant and her courses, as well as working with her, you can visit www.rachelgrantcoaching.com, on Twitter at Coach Rachel G, and on Facebook, the page is Healing from Sexual Abuse. Thank you for exploring a very difficult subject. And I want to just shed lots of light on it because if somebody who is listening can see that life can be better, that recovery is possible, that joy is possible, um, that I think makes my heart smile. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Thank you, Lisa. Oh, thank you, Rachel. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my amazing guest today, Amy Morin and Rachel Grant, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.